Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. If you would, please turn to the passage so you can follow along with the sermon. Welcome again to our service at Christ the King, particularly if you are visiting with us this morning. We're delighted you are here. At last, we come to it. At last, we come to what the whole exposition of Hebrews is for. Over ten and a half chapters, we have followed the pastor as he has delivered in this written sermon his exposition of Jesus, the Son of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The pastor began in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. For ten and a half chapters, the pastor's goal has been to explain what it is that God has said. In doing so, the pastor has kept our focus always on the Son. And of course, though the Son has existed from all eternity, it is the Son as Jesus that has been the subject of Hebrews. Jesus, the truly human one the one as whom the Son was for a little while made lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Hebrews has been all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Focusing in on the pastor's primary theme, as we traced it through the central exposition of Hebrews that began in chapter 5, verse 1, and concluded only in last Sunday's passage, the primary theme the pastor expounded had to do with Jesus's Melchizedekian priesthood. Back in chapter 5, verse 9, the pastor wrote, And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so it all came together to form what we have called the heartbeat of Hebrews, that we have a great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Grasping that truth is the key to our life and our salvation. And you remember, don't you, how anxious the pastor was to explain that truth to his hearers, though he feared they were too spiritually dull to grasp what he had to say. He addressed their dullness back in chapter 6. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, he wrote in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so the pastor carried on. In chapter 7, he argued that Jesus is a better priest. 
For according to the oath of God himself, Jesus is a Melchizedekian priest, one who can bring people near to God and is able to save them completely. In chapter 8, the pastor explained how Jesus is not only a high priest who has completed his saving work and sat down at God's right hand, but he is also the mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant, in which the law is written on the heart and sins are forgiven, making clear that the old covenant is no longer in force. And finally, in chapters 9 and 10, the pastor showed us how Jesus offered a better sacrifice, how his blood is what will bring believers into the heavenly tabernacle, God's holy presence. Believers are truly cleansed in their conscience through Jesus' sacrificial blood. The work of priests under the old covenant is never finished, as we saw last week, because they stand and offer the same sacrifices daily, but Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand because his one sacrifice brought forgiveness of sins once for all. So now, now at last, we come to what the whole exposition is for, brothers and sisters. In our passage this morning, Hebrews, the book is transitioning. As one author puts it, from applicable doctrine to doctrinal application. Not that there haven't been moments of application throughout Hebrews already. There certainly have been. But in the verses we take up this morning, we come to the closing section of the book. Hebrews 1 verse 1 to, to chapter 10 verse 18 is primarily, but not exclusively, exposition. Hebrews 10 verse 19 to Hebrews 13 verse 25 is primarily, but not exclusively, exhortation. These final chapters are full of commands, examples, warnings, and some comforting words too. At times, we'll be made uncomfortable. The pastor isn't about to pull punches. But understand that his purpose, and mine as I preach his words to you, is benevolent. The pastor now urges his hearers and us forward to vigorous perseverance based on our appropriation of the benefits provided by our great high priest. The extensive exposition of Hebrews that we've spent so many weeks in that ended in chapter 10, verse 18, it's all in view. Christ, our high priest, is the all-sufficient resource for escaping the fate of the unfaithful and joining the victorious company of the faithful. The pastor would detach us from the pressures and pleasures of this life to fix our gaze firmly on our heavenly goal, where even now Christ sits at God's right hand to give us aid. The urgency you will feel in these chapters is for obedience. Because the word of God that we have received in this sermon is nothing less than the revelation of Jesus Christ's full sufficiency to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, the pastor will warn in chapter 12, verse 25. Instead, 
let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is what Hebrews is for, dear friends. It therefore comes as no surprise that our text this morning begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, three things. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, revolve around three exhortations. How are we to live our lives of faith in light of who Christ is for us? Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24 Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's faith, hope, and love, dear friends. What we find in verses 19 to 25 are three exhortations that encompass the totality of the Christian life. That's what Hebrews is for, because that's what Christ, our high priest, makes possible. We'll look at the passage under three headings, simply taken from the three exhortations I just read. Number one, draw near. Number two, hold fast. And number three, help one another. Draw near in faith, hold fast to hope, and help one another to live in love. Now that makes this seem like a short and straightforward passage, but there's a lot to cover in it. And it seemed to me as I was working on this sermon right up until yesterday that all the details of these verses at this exact moment of Hebrews are particularly significant. So I've decided not to rush this, but instead to take things slowly. We'll spend this Sunday and next Sunday just in this passage. This morning we'll consider the first exhortation to draw near. Next week we'll look at the other two. We begin then by considering the first of the three exhortations in verse 22. The pastor says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In his book, How Should We Then Live? Pastor and apologist Francis Schaeffer writes this, quote, the central message of biblical Christianity is the possibility of men and women approaching God through the work of Christ. Let me say that again. The central message, according to Francis Schaeffer, the central message of biblical Christianity is the possibility of men and women approaching God through the work of Christ. I don't know how that summary would have struck you before our study of Hebrews, 
But after reaching this point of the book, I find I'm inclined to agree with that. To approach God is to understand all that Christ is for us. When the pastor urges his hearers to draw near in verse 22, what that means is draw near to God because you understand all that Christ has done. We know that the pastor means for us to draw near to God because this is a favorite word that he uses in Hebrews. Seven times the pastor uses this draw near verb. Listen to three of the uses. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 7, verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. No wonder, let us draw near, is the first exhortation the pastor gives as his sermon now turns to application. It is the central command of Hebrews. The exhortation which, when followed, will make possible all the others. Draw near to God. We'll talk about what that might actually look like a little later on and into next week. But before we move on to that, let me make a distinction at this point. In the book of Hebrews, the pastor writes both about the near to draw near, uh, about the need to draw near to God now, and about the great promise that one day you and I will in fact enter the place where God dwells. Drawing near to God now and finally entering where God dwells are, of course, related things in Hebrews, but they're not exactly the same thing. In verse 19, the pastor references the fact that we have confidence to enter the holy places before he then exhorts us to draw near in verse 22. The distinction I want to make is that when the pastor talks about entering the holy places, what he ultimately has in view is what we will do fully in the future, in the end, when Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 28 of chapter 9 said, Whereas when the pastor talks about drawing near, he refers to what we do now, while we eagerly wait for that entrance, our final salvation. Now, the two things are related, of course. Our drawing near now is in anticipation of fully entering the presence of God in the future. In fact, we draw near now on the basis of the same confidence with which the pastor says we will enter. In fact, I hope it will become clearer in the weeks ahead of us that we must draw near now because doing so is in fact the means of our perseverance in faith. 
And as we'll see, it is our perseverance that is necessary for us to finally enter. As one commentator summarizes it, the present practice of drawing near to God reaches its anticipated goal, our final entrance into the divine presence, through perseverance. Now, it is no exaggeration to say that the ultimate entrance in view here is the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to make a way for us to go to God. This is something we've been focused on throughout Hebrews, but it's not just in Hebrews that we find it. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus himself speaks of this reality in John chapter 14. We've quoted this passage before. John 14 verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The faithful examples we'll consider in Hebrews chapter 11 understood something of this, if not the exact working of it in the sun. They desire a better country, the pastor explains in chapter 11, verse 16. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, strangers and exiles on the earth, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The great hope of God's people has always been to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as Psalm 23 verse 6 famously says. The glorious truth of Hebrews is that it is because of Jesus, our high priest, that we, and in fact all the faithful who have come before us, will enter that city and dwell in that house. But we're not there yet. As Christ himself now waits until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, so also do we wait, living by faith. And according to verse 22 of our passage, what does that entail? It entails drawing near. Now, in the time in between, Jesus Christ, the man, has entered the holy places and is now seated there at the right hand of the Father. Our future entrance is thus assured. For as chapter 6, verse 20 says, there Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. As we wait for that final entrance, what are we to do? We are to draw near. Now with that distinction in view, let's consider all that surrounds this exhortation in verse 22. Because uniquely among the three exhortations in our passage, this first one is preceded by two reasons why we can do it. In verses 19 and 21 of our text, the pastor gives two bases for his critical exhortation to draw near to God. And as you've likely already realized, 
what these verses amount to is a comprehensive description of the benefits of Christ's priesthood. There are two things in verses 19 and to 21 that the pastor reminds us we have already. Two things we already possess. I'll call them access and advocacy. Since we have access to the presence of God himself and a priestly advocate always there for us, we can do what the pastor exhorts us to do even now, to draw near to God. First, we have access. Verses 19 and 20 read, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, let us draw near. Now, my summary of those two verses is that through Jesus Christ, that on account of Jesus' earthly obedience and self-offering on the cross, you and I have authorization to enter the presence of God. So let's start with that word confidence in verse 19. In the ESV, confidence there translates a term that in some extra-biblical contexts was used to mean the right to do something. So, for example, elsewhere that word describes the right of free speech exercised by those who were citizens in the assembly of a Greek city. Such usages like as that allow us to say that it's not a stretch to understand the pastor here to be saying something like, since we have the right of entrance, or since we have authorization for entrance. The pastor is not merely concerned with us feeling confident. In fact, I think he's mainly concerned here with the basis for such confidence, the authorization or the right of entry that is now provided by Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. We tend automatically to focus on the subjective side of this. And most English translations frankly encourage that with their choice of words. But what I think is that if the subjective is in view here, it's because it flows from the objective reality we are allowed to enter. Why? Because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Because his better sacrifice has purified the heavenly things themselves. Remember from earlier in chapter 10. It's all by the blood. Thus purified, we have access to God. We have confidence to enter the holy places, the heavenly holy places, where we will dwell with God forever. Chapter 9, verse 12 says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. These same ones we're talking about here. By means of his own blood. Chapter 9, verse 24 says, Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Which means that if we endure, then one day by the blood of Jesus, you and I will enter the holy places forever too. That's where Hebrews is taking us by the end of chapter 12. 
And so again, with that heavenly homeland in view, knowing that by the blood of Jesus, we have authorization for entrance into life with God in a place, what are we to do now? Well, we're to claim that same authorization that will be ours in the end. We're to claim that now. As now we approach in whatever ways are possible for us in this life, all of it in anticipation of that day when we will finally and fully enter. That's the first basis for the pastor's exhortation to draw near, the confident authorization we have to enter the holy places. But now before we turn to verse 21 of our text and to the second basis for his exhortation, the pastor has more to say about that entrance that Jesus has made possible in verse 20. And I don't want to skip it, so let's look there. The pastor in verse 20 describes the entrance as the new and living way that he, Jesus, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now that verse has generated a lot of commentary over the years. We won't spend a great deal of time working out all of it, but I do want to at least show you how I understand it. In describing the entrance we've been granted, the pastor describes it as a new and living way that Jesus opened for us. Only if I could, I would also retranslate slightly the word opened. It's not wrong. I just think it would be more helpful to use the word inaugurated instead so that the verse would read the new and living way that he inaugurated for us. Because the same underlying Greek term that the ESV translates opened here was used recently, in fact, in chapter 9, verse 18, where it refers to Moses inaugurating the old covenant with blood. Chapter 9, verse 18 in the ESV reads, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated, same word, without blood. It seems, therefore, to me that the point is that just as Moses inaugurated the old covenant with the blood of animals, so did Jesus inaugurate the new, but not with the blood of animals. According to chapter 9, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Jesus Christ established access into God's presence by nothing less than the high priestly sacrifice of himself. And now we're right back to everything we've been studying for weeks in Hebrews, aren't we? Because by that sacrifice, Christ provided cleansing from sin, thereby establishing the new covenant, taking his seat at God's right hand, and inaugurating a new way for us to access God. That's the point here again, I think. The way is new because it's unprecedented. This isn't the same old barrier, but rather a new entrance that provides the people of God with access into God's very presence. And this way is living because it leads to life in the presence of the living God, eternal life. 
It is a way of access provided and guaranteed by Christ, who is a priest forever, as we have thoroughly studied. Chapter 7, verse 16 says Jesus became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Chapter 7, verse 25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. Indeed, this is the new and living way that has opened for us. Well, finally, from verse 20, the pastor says this new and living way is through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, this is the tricky part, but it's not all tricky. I think it's clear that in referencing the curtain, the pastor is referring to that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the tabernacle. We considered that at some length in chapter 9 of Hebrews. The main point being that the curtain was representative of a barrier, a barrier that in the old covenant kept mankind from approaching God. Now we get to go through it, right? How? Well, you remember how, according to chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus has gone into the inner place behind the curtain as a forerunner on our behalf. By passing through this curtain, Jesus has made a new and living way for us to go where he has gone. The curtain is no longer a barrier for us. Of course, the tricky part is what the pastor means then when he seems to equate the flesh of Jesus with the curtain in the last phrase of verse 20. He says the way is through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Surely the pastor is not saying that Jesus' own flesh somehow separates us from God like the curtain did. No, he's not saying that. Rather, what I think the pastor's saying is that our access to God isn't ultimately granted by passing through a curtain. It's granted through the bloody, dead flesh of Jesus Christ. That in other words, Jesus secured access to God's presence through or by means of, in this case, his flesh. It is, I think, another reference to his sacrificial act in parallel with the phrase by the blood of Jesus in verse 19. Just very quickly, that's my reading of that, but be that as it may, the overall point is surely clear. We, you and I, have confidence to enter the holy places. But it's not only that believers have access to God through Jesus' flesh and blood. As verse 21 tells us, we also have an advocate who is ever present there. The second thing we possess, according to the pastor, is a great priest over the house of God. The pastor could have any number of things in view regarding our high priest there. But as the one who has provided such a great salvation by inaugurating or opening the new and living way for the members of God's household to enter the divine presence, what is it that he does now for us? We've seen this before as well. Hebrews 7 verses 24 and 25 tell us, 
He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Make the connection to our text here. Since, chapter 7, verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is that verse from Hebrews 7 that I think is the key to what the pastor means here in verse 21 of our text. We have authorization to enter the holy presence of God. Yes, but once we're there, why will we be permitted to stay? How is it that Christ will save you to the uttermost? Answer, because his high priesthood is permanent. His perpetual presence before the Father will be his never-ending intercession on your behalf. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The one who opened and secured the way for us into God's presence is there himself, you see, and it is he whose presence pleads effectually for our acceptance there. Because our high priest is there, we know we belong there too. And so it is our dual possession of such access and such advocacy that makes possible our compliance with the pastor's central exhortation in the entire book, let us draw near to God. So, in the very few remaining minutes that aren't even really remaining this morning, let's consider how it is that we do that. And then we'll pick it up next week where we leave off here. How do we draw near, brothers and sisters? I think there are two primary ways we carry out the pastor's exhortation in verse 22. And here I am simply following the nearly universal understanding of these verses from what I've read on it. Two ways. First, the exhortation to draw near now to God is quite naturally an exhortation to prayer. The pastor doesn't say that in so many words, but it seems evident to me that if you and I are to live faithfully, which is clearly his concern, we must draw near to God in our minds and our hearts, which means we must pray a lot. We could rightly understand the pastor's exhortation here to have a continuous force to it. Let us keep drawing near, the pastor is saying. Prayer would seem to be well-suited to that sense of things. Of course, prayer can be something we schedule very rigidly into small portions of our day. And the ancient tradition of praying at certain times of the day speaks to the need for such an intentional approach. But there is also a sense in which that daily rhythm was always meant to reflect the fact that for the Christian, prayer is a way of life. Paul's big on that. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he writes in Colossians 4, verse 2, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
In all circumstances, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verses 16 and following, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, take up the helmet of salvation, take up the sword of the Spirit, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication, in case it wasn't enough. Romans 12, verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. A constant habit of prayer in our lives, day by day, yes, but perhaps even moment by moment, is one clear way we can draw near. And it's critical to our perseverance. We know that from chapter 4, verse 16. We quoted this verse earlier. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is it a time of need? Then draw near. Draw near in prayer. But secondly, and much more broadly, well, not much more, but more broadly, and here we'll have to pick it up again next week, the exhortation to draw near is an exhortation to a life of worship, brothers and sisters. We draw near to God in worship. Firstly, in prayer. Secondly, in worship. We all know that. But here I do not mean just participating in services of worship, whether privately or with others. Those are vitally important, of course. They're even clearly required on biblical grounds. Going to church is an essential part of a life of worship. And as we'll see next week in verses 24 and 25, we gather with other Christians for other reasons also. But what I think the pastor is even more getting at in verse 22, is along the lines of what Paul talks about in Romans 12. Worship, our worship, is more than just our corporate gathering with other Christians. Worship is our whole response to the mercies of God. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is our all-of-life response to God's mercy in Christ that constitutes our worship and thus what it means to draw near to God, I think. While certainly prayer and worship in the sense that we often use that word, as in, I went to worship on Sunday, these are clear expressions of drawing near to God. The pastor intends his exhortation here to encompass the entire orientation of our lives. What else could we conclude, given that in this single verse, in one single verse here, the pastor sets forth no fewer than four guidelines for worship. Four things about the condition we should be in as a result of all that has been said in Hebrews. Look at verse 22 as we close by simply listing these out, and then I'll have to fill them in and explain them next time. This is where we'll pick things up. But look at verse 22. 
Let us draw near, the pastor writes, first with a true heart. That is, a heart that is attuned to God and ready to obey Him. The new covenant being a reality in our lives. Second, in full assurance of faith. That is, living with confidence in God's promise for the future and relying on His power for the present. Thirdly, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Meaning we're forgiven, yes, but also we are freed, purified from dead works to serve the living God, as chapter 9, verse 14 said it. And fourthly, with our bodies washed with pure water. We're cleansed inside and out, our whole person prepared for faithfulness to God, this is what it is to draw near in worship in our lives. It's our whole self turned to God, ready to run the race set before us. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So let us draw near that we may be saved. More next week. God grant us the mercy and grace we need to draw near to hold fast, and to help one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.